As we go now to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have declared, is not my word like fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Your word goes forth from your mouth and shall not return to you empty without accomplishing what you desire and without succeeding in the matter for which you send it. So we pray that you would bless it to us now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we want to read from uh, verses 22 through 36 and to consider that passage uh, in connection with Lord's Day 12 and the truth that Peter professes in verse 36 that Jesus has been made by God the Father, both Lord and Christ. So Acts chapter 2, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 22 and read through 36. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness. With your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Uh, Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. I know it's hard to read part of Peter's Pentecost sermon without wanting uh, to read the whole thing and wanting to read the aftermath of what is happening, but we really want to focus um, our attention this evening in a particular way on that last verse, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Um, If you're visiting with us, one of the things we do in our evening services is often go through the Heidelberg Catechism and think about the important fundamentals of our faith. Uh, And this is a particularly rich section of going through the Catechism where we consider the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Um, we began that last week with Reverend Tedrick thinking about what the name Jesus means. Uh, there's significance to that name, isn't there? There's significance ascribed to it in the scriptures. His name means Savior. That's what he came to do, was to save his people from their sins. Um, and as we think about who our Lord is, it's a wonderful pleasure to be reminded that his name means something. It means Savior. That's what he's come to do. Uh, but that's not the only way Jesus is spoken of in the scriptures. Um, in fact, often when we talk about Jesus, we almost always say Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, those titles often accompany who he is, uh, reminding us in a rich and powerful way that he is not only a savior, but there are other important things that we are to take note of. Um, and that's what Peter is doing in a powerful way here in his Pentecost sermon, is saying that the Lord has been made, that Jesus has been made by the Father, both Lord and Christ. Uh, those are important titles. They mean something as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to think about, particularly this evening, that title of Christ. And how that title helps bring to mind something of his redemptive work. Because the name Jesus tells us that he came to be a savior. Um, and as some scholars have pointed out, the name Christ tells us how he became a savior. Uh, what he needed to do to be the savior that his people needed. Um, that the name Jesus tells us he was a savior. The title Christ tells us the means and the mode of how he becomes a savior. Uh, what we needed in a savior. Uh, listen to how William Ames, the Puritan, puts it. We have three names that are attributed to our savior Jesus. Jesus, Christ, and Lord. They are customarily conjoined everywhere in the scriptures. The following distinction among them can be observed. Jesus is properly his name of grace. Christ, his name of authority, and Lord, his name of power. The name Jesus shows the goal that our Savior had placed before him. The title Christ shows the means and mode of achieving that goal. The name Christ properly denotes the true perfection and reception of dignity from the Father. That's helpful, isn't it? To think of our, our Lord in terms of his title of grace, that he came to be a savior, and his title of authority, that he came as the Christ, uh, given the authority by his Father to be the savior that we need. Um, and there's, there's much to think about in that title, Lord, and hopefully we, we'll do that, Lord willing, next week when we consider Lord's Day 13 and think about his title as Lord. But tonight we want to think about his title as Christ and what that means for us as the Savior. Um, to focus on that title that speaks of the true, uh, the true perfection and reception of dignity that Jesus has received from his Father, who his Father has made him to be. Because that's certainly Peter's declaration, isn't it? That the Father made him Christ. The Father invested him with this authority. The Father invested him with the office to be the Savior that his people need. And we want to think about that office together. Um, because that office has ramifications not just for our Savior, but for those who are saved. Uh, that's what makes Lord's Day 12 a very fine statement of who our Lord Jesus Christ is because it reminds us that he has the office of Christ 
and he has made all his people to share in the office of Christians. Um, So this tells us not just about the office of our Savior, uh, but as the offices that we share as those who by faith share in his anointing as Christians. So there's a lot going on in this Lord's Day. Uh, There's a lot going on in this sermon that Peter preaches. And so we want to think about it in this way, that Christ was ordained to save. And then we want to think about the offices of the Savior. And then finally, we want to think about the offices of the saved. What does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, So we want to think about Jesus ordained to save, the offices of the Savior, and the offices of the saved. Um, It's good to know that our Lord was ordained to save uh, over and over again, as Peter is preaching this Pentecost sermon, particularly in the portion that we read this evening, we see him referring to what God, God the Father, has done for Jesus. Um, over and over again, Peter puts it in those terms, what God has done for Jesus, right? So he's referring to God the Father, what the Father has done for his Son, um, and you can, you can start in verse 22 and then just read down all the things that Peter says God the Father has done for his Son. Uh, God the Father, in verse 22, attested to Jesus by mighty works which God did through him. We're told in verse 23 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of the Father. We're told in verse 24 that it was God the Father who raised him from the dead. Uh, That was the Father who swore an oath concerning Jesus in Psalm 16. That's the point of citing Psalm 16. To say that was the Lord's oath, the Father's oath regarding His Son. Uh, The Father raised Him up and exalted Him, and from whom He has received the promised Holy Spirit, in verse 33. And the Father has made Him both Lord and Christ. Um, There's a continued emphasis on what God the Father has done for His Son. Um, All of this, why? Why is Peter speaking in this way? Why does Peter want to organize his theology this way? To show that everything to Jesus comes from his Father. Uh, That he's invested with all of these things at the will of his Father. That he bears this important office of the Christ at the ordination of his Father. The Father has prepared his Son to be everything he needs to be, to be the Christ to be the Savior that God's people need. And in all these statements by Peter, then we can see the evidence of what we needed as a people in a Savior. Not only does Peter helpfully say God the Father prepared him to be everything he would need to be to be a Savior, he also helpfully shows us in a sort of skeleton form here what kinds of things needed to happen in order for Christ to be a Savior. Uh, what it needed, what it took for Jesus to be the Christ, the Savior that God's people needed. Uh, what do we need in a Savior? Uh, we need a Savior who is a prophet. I think that's really the thrust of verse 22. The Father attested to the authority of Jesus' words by the mighty works that he accomplished in him. Now, I know that in verse 22, G- G- Peter does not refer to uh, Jesus' words. He refers to his mighty works. But we know that when Jesus did mighty works, they were not ends in themselves. Um, Je- Jesus didn't just do miracles for the sake of doing miracles. What did the miracles he, do- he did show to the world about him? That he spoke with authority. That he had a kind of authority in the world that no one had ever seen before. 
Um, he did things that no one had ever done before. That he had this authority that was given to him by his father. And the mighty works that he did often were to confirm the reality of the words he spoke. To show that if he had the authority to do these mighty works, certainly his words also carried authority. Now think of when Jesus heals the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. We read, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Um, he, he did these mighty works to testify to the authority of his word. Right? They said this man is blaspheming. It would be blasphemy if you didn't have authority to forgive sins, to tell people their sins were forgiven. But if you've been given that authority, it is no blasphemy. And the powerful thing that Jesus does in, in making him rise and walk is to say, what, which do you think is harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to heal his, his being a paralytic? So that you would know my words are true, see it in the work. See the authority demonstrated in the work. That's what God was doing through His Son when He came into the world, demonstrating that He spoke with authority. Um, God's people needed a prophet, someone who could come into the world and speak with authority. Peter also makes the point that God's people needed a priest. What did they need in a Savior? Not just a prophet who could declare the will of God with authority, but a priest. Uh, Peter refers to the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who died for sins according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of his father. Who was raised from the dead. Um, that has all to do with that sacrificial death that we need to pay for our sins. Um, Peter is demonstrating through what he says that we needed a priest who could die for our sins and who ever lives to intercede for his people. God's people needed a prophet. God's people needed a priest. God's people needed a, say it with me, king. Right? We're, we're so familiar with the three offices of Christ and the importance of those three offices that almost to say prophet, priest, we almost can easily fill in, we need a king. And that's, that's what Peter says. I'm always sort of entertained by that section of Peter's sermon. I don't know if he meant it as a kind of lighthearted moment, um, but he says, with certainty I can tell you that David died and was buried. Um, I always kind of find that sort of a funny thing to say. I can tell you for sure that David died and was buried. I feel like I'm on very safe ground saying David died. He's buried, his grave is with us to this day. So who is being spoken of in Psalm 16 when David says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption? Um, but that he would raise him, uh, that he would sit on the throne that was promised until the Lord made his enemies a footstool for his feet. Um, who is this king that David was speaking about? It can't be himself, Peter says, because we can go over to his tomb together. 
And if he wasn't speaking for himself, he was speaking as a prophet about a king who was coming. A king about whom David would say, he is my Lord. Right? That's when, whenever Jesus wanted to flip the script on the Pharisees who were trying to stump him with theological questions, several times in the Gospels we read, his go-to question was, okay, you've asked me your questions, now you answer me a question. Why does David call his son Lord? Wouldn't, in Psalm 110, he says, the Lord says to my Lord. So David is calling some king Lord who is actually one of his descendants. And you don't call your son your Lord. Sons call their fathers Lord. Well, boys and girls, maybe you don't do that at home. But in some places they did that. Um, That's how it was. And so Jesus would say, who is this person who comes descended of David, but with a dignity higher than David's? Before whom David would bow and call him Lord. And that was always the question that stumped the religious leaders. They had no answer to that question. They, they could not solve the Psalm 110 riddle. Um, because the one who would come was both the son of David and the ancient of days. Um, who was from the beginning. Um, the true and everlasting king who would reign on David's throne forever. Um, What Peter's sermon declares clearly is that Jesus came to be everything that God's people needed him to be. He needed to be a prophet, he needed to be a priest, and he needed to be a king. And he needed to be all of those things in a way that no one else had ever been them before. Um, Those offices of prophet, priest, and king are so helpful for us, uh, but as we think about the offices of the Savior, he was ordained to save to fill these offices, but as we think of these offices and what was unique about his calling as the Christ, um, the Heidelberg Catechism is very helpful in showing us the uniqueness of each of these offices as they manifest themselves in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, because God's people had had prophets before. Right? There are other prophets in the Bible. Um, we could list some of the important prophets who had come before him. Um, God's people needed a prophet, but what they were waiting for was the chief prophet. Um, the one who could do what all other prophets could not do. And Moses had taught God's people to look for that day. Um, Moses had said in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen and following... The Lord is going to raise up a prophet like me from among my brothers. Um, And when he comes, you have to listen to him. Um, Now, there was no one higher at that time than Moses. right? Moses was the leader of God's people. So for Moses to come and say, there's a prophet that's coming after me and you really need to listen to him. um, That, of course, led all of God's people to say, now who is this great prophet who's going to come? to whom we really ought to listen. Who is this great prophet who will come? This chief prophet among all prophets who will reveal God's will, but who like all the other prophets do, but will do it in such a way that makes him an even greater prophet than all those who came before him. What makes Christ unique as the chief prophet? It's that he can fully reveal the will of God concerning our salvation. You know, prophets were were caught up before the Lord and given a vision of particular things they were to go and tell God's people. 
but they knew only what was revealed to them. Uh, They could be given a word and then they were called to carry that word to God's people, but they didn't have full knowledge of what they'd seen or understood. Um, That's why I like reading those accounts of of the prophecies that Daniel sees. Um, Daniel sees them but has no idea what they're about. Is always asking someone to explain them to him and sometimes just gets sick to his stomach and has to go lay down after he's seen them. Um, You can have parts of the truth revealed and not be able to see all of it or be able to understand all of it. What the promise was is there is one who's coming who will be the chief prophet and who will be able to fully reveal the secret will of God concerning our salvation. Who will be able to come and open to us completely the mind of God. Because unlike other prophets, he's not caught up from earth to heaven to see a vision and then given back to earth to, be, to go out and carry out his message. He actually is the prophet that comes from heaven, being with his father from all eternity and coming into the world with full knowledge of the father's plan. Who knows what the definite plan and foreknowledge of God has been from before the foundation of the world. He's unique in that sense. He fully understands God's will concerning our salvation. But what makes him even greater than other prophets and teachers is that he can open our hearts and minds to understand it. The other prophets who came, they could declare the word of God. They could not open hearts to receive it. But now here comes a prophet and teacher who not only fully understands the secret will of God concerning our salvation, but can declare it to people and can open their hearts and minds to receive it. That's something that no teacher can do. No merely human teacher can do. You can't open hearts and minds to understand. Uh, That's a frustration that teachers sometimes experience. Uh, Because you teach it, but sometimes it just doesn't land. It doesn't get through. But here is one who comes and is the prophet who not only knows, but can make it understood. Who can open hearts and minds to understand what God has declared. Can open hearts and minds to understand it and to believe it. To fully reveal it in that sense. Not just by speaking it, but by making it known. That's what makes our Lord unique as a prophet. He is the chief prophet who not only fully knows, but fully makes known. Can make people know it and agree it and agree with it and trust it. Now that's the wonderful thing we hear Jesus saying in John 17, 6 and 8. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Why have they believed that the Father sent him? Because he has manifested himself to them. He has made them understand who he is. He has taught them in that way. That's what God's people needed to be saved. The chief prophet who could both fully reveal who he 
was and what God's will for our salvation was and who could make us understand it. Make us believe it. Cause us to take it to heart so that we might be saved. We needed a prophet, as one said, who can illuminate our minds and open our hearts so that we may be taught by God. And this is what Jesus does. He opens our minds and hearts that God may teach us. We needed that chief prophet. And God's people didn't just need any old priest. They needed our only high priest. God's people had had other high priests. Uh, We could name some of them from the scriptures. We could think about Aaron and Eliezer and other high priests that, that were there. But we needed a particular kind of high priest. And God's word told us to look for that particular kind of high priest. A high priest who could do what for God's people? Who could offer the only sacrifice that could really save? What was the problem of the other high priests in the Bible? They could not offer a sacrifice that would save. Right? We read that in Hebrews 10.11. And every priest who stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Those high priests offered sacrifices, but those sacrifices couldn't take away sins. And so what were God's people looking for? They were looking for that high priest who would come, who could take away sins, who could offer that sacrifice that alone could take away sins. And that's what Jesus Christ came into the world to do. That's what he did by offering himself on the cross. He comes as the high priest who can finally offer the sacrifice that's necessary to take away sins. That's the glory of his priestly work. Hebrews goes on in 10, 12 to 14. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus has now come as the only high priest who could offer that sacrifice. The sacrifice that actually takes away sin. That actually leaves God's people perfected for all time. By that one single offering he offered. Who has delivered us by the sacrifice of his body. He is both the high priest and the sacrifice. Um, That's the testimony of Hebrews 9.12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He has done what no other high priest could do. Be both the sacrifice that takes away sin and secures the eternal redemption of his people by that one act. Um, And can be both the priest and the sacrifice that's offered. The sacrifice that takes away sins. And only he can be that priest because only he can lay down his life as a sacrifice for sins and take it up again. Right? It wouldn't be sufficient if we just had a priest who came and died and died. And that was the end of the story. Um, He had to be raised up. Why? Because for a high priest to function, he needs to live. 
Right? That's maybe as insightful as I can tell you for sure that David died. Um, I can tell you for sure that a priest has to be living to do you any good. Right? And that's why he had to be raised from the dead to continue in his work as priest, which is to do what? To bring us before his father. Uh, to minister for us. To continue to live, to intercede for the people of God. Um, that's why he had to be raised up as well to be Christ. He had not just to lay down his life, but to take it up again. Why? So that he might continue to plead that sacrifice him in the heavenly places for his people. That's what he told his people. You, you think it's bad that I'm leaving, but it's actually really important that I go because I have to go minister to you in the heavenly places. I go there to minister for you at the right hand of the Father. To be the priest who's always interceding for you. Who's interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. So I can continue to intercede for those whom I have redeemed. And it's so important for us that he is there. And he is the only one who could do that. Lay down his life. Take it up again. Ascend to the Father. And minister for us in the heavenly places. Um, and that's what he continues to do for us. By his resurrected and exalted life, what does he do? One person put it beautifully. He efficaciously intercedes for us with the Father, and he renders us and our imperfect works pleasing to God by virtue of his own offering and intercession. Why are you, why is God pleased with you? Why is God pleased with the imperfect works that you and I do? It's because Christ is in heaven interceding for us. He's pleading for us before the Father. He's interceding for us. He's always arguing His redeeming work on our behalf. That's what makes us acceptable to God. That's why Jesus said to His disciples, if you knew where I was going, you wouldn't be sorry that I was going there. Because my work there is crucial for you. Your, God is pleased with you because I am always interceding for you. I am interceding for your person. I am interceding for your works. I am interceding for your prayers. Everything you're offering to God, I'm taking and perfecting and carrying to him so that it's pleasing in his sight. That's why we're pleasing to God because of our only high priest. We needed that kind of high priest and we need a particular kind of king. We need an eternal king. Um, David was a great king. And things, not perfect, but he was a great king. He was remembered by God as a man after God's own heart. It was a glory to have a king like that. A king who was concerned for justice in his kingdom. A king who was there for all of his subjects. Right? And, and things were beautiful in that kingdom, but he died. Um, and and we, we learn that over and again in the scriptures. The kingdom is only as good as its king. Um, and as the king goes, so went the kingdom. And there were times of real blessing where there were godly kings. But there were times when things really didn't go well because there were kings who had no interest in the things of God. And what were God's people looking for? They were looking for that king who would come, who would be a righteous king, who would be a king like David, but who would never die. 
who would reign forever on his father's throne, who would actually triumph over all of their enemies and bring in a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of justice and a kingdom of righteousness that he would rule over forever. They were looking for an eternal king, not one who would die, but one who would live and reign forever. That's what God's people were looking for in the Christ. A king like David who would rule over God's kingdom forever. And that's the significance of Christ as our eternal king. He has come and won the kingdom. He is a conquering king. He is victor. He has triumphed over the world by his cross. He's triumphed over sin. He's triumphed over death. He's triumphed over the devil. He is a conquering king. That's how he is received in heaven. As the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. The lamb comes into heaven triumphant by his sacrifice. He has won the kingdom. And the kingdom that he has won, he continues to govern. We have a king now who is ruling and reigning at the right hand of his father. Um, sometimes we can feel like the world is spinning apart, spinning off its axis, going out of control. But the truth of the matter is this world is being governed by a king. The Lord Jesus is king. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is governing the kingdom that he has won. And the good news for those who have bent the knee to this king and acknowledged him as Lord and put their faith and trust in him is he is not only governing this kingdom, but he is guarding us. He is defending us and preserving us in the salvation he has won for us by his word and spirit. Um, He is not a king in name only. Um, He is a true king ruling and reigning on behalf of his people. He conquered and triumphs gloriously over all the enemies of our souls and of our salvation. He has won the victory. He has built his kingdom. He is governing that kingdom. He is guarding his subjects until he comes again in glory. He will guard us and keep us in the deliverance he has won for us. That is the kind of king God's people need. That is the kind of kingdom that we are a part of. Um, That kingdom that the Lord Jesus won at such a cost, contending with sin and death and the devil on his cross and who overcame by the blood, is not going to easily surrender that kingdom. Is not going to tolerate people attacking that kingdom or trying to take it from him. Revelation 17, 14 puts it as simply as they will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. They will make war on Him but they will find that He is the King of Kings. He is the authority in the world. Um, He is the King who has saved. There's glory in all of that for the people of God. To know that we have this Jesus, this Christ, and to know that we share in these offices. That all of these offices have ramifications for us as Christians. It's such a fine setup in the catechism. 
uh, to say that we have this Christ and that we are, as Christians, by faith we share in this anointing and all of these offices make a difference in our lives. Um, Just as he is a prophet, we have a prophetic office. And what is our prophetic office? I'm anointed to confess his name. That's the truth of all Christians. We've been anointed to profess his name. We can't fully, we can't do what he does as the chief prophet and fully reveal God's secret will for our salvation. But how do we exercise our office? By confessing as true what he's revealed to us. Uh, We as prophets confess his name. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We have a prophetic office, which is to confess his name. Um, We have a priestly office. We don't have to offer a sacrifice that takes away sin. That sacrifice has been offered. We've been perfected by that one sacrifice. There's been an eternal redemption secured by that one sacrifice. So what are we doing for sacrifice? I am anointed to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks. Um, I see my life as an opportunity to offer sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, We are all prophets, we are all priests, and we are all kings. What does our kingly anointing mean? Um, Well, we are anointed to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Again, we don't have to win any victory. The victory's been won. Christ has defeated sin and death and hell. What is left for us to do? Just to fight under his banner until the Lord makes everything, all his enemies, a footstool with his, under his feet. We fight against those same enemies, but we strive, and the catechism is so helpful here, we strive with a free conscience, I'm not fighting to try to win my freedom. I'm not trying to fight to set myself free. I am a soldier in a free army, set free from the tyranny of the devil by the Son of God. We can strive now with a free conscience against the devil as those who are no longer part of his kingdom, no longer those under his tyranny. We've been set free. I can strive with a free conscience against the devil. I strive against sin and devil in this life with a free conscience under the banner of the eternal king who has set me free, knowing that while warfare is our lot in this life, we will reign with him in the life to come. That just as he triumphed and is now reigning at the right hand of his father, so we will overcome by the blood of the lamb. Uh, We will live with our Lord in triumph forever. And we can fight this good fight in his strength until he returns. Um, That's our hope, that we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and in that strength stand. See, the office of Christ has tremendous ramifications, not just for what he did as a savior, but what we've become as those who are part of him by faith. And that saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, 
we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. Uh, we are prophets, priests, and kings in Christ. And so when the struggle seems long and the crown seems far away, we can look with G- to Jesus Christ, our king, our prophet, our priest, for all we need, and he will supply our every need. And I'll close with this summary statement of what our Lord does for us. By true faith in all our necessities, we may see that Christ can supply our lack. If we wish our ignorance and blindness removed, we may flee to Christ our prophet, and in him we may seek wisdom, which is the wisdom of God. If we are threatened by the guilt of our sins and we are accused by our own consciences, we may take refuge in the blood and offering of Christ our priest. If we desire to receive something from God, we may apply to the intercession of Christ our priest. And finally, if in our powerlessness we are exhausted by the power of our enemies and thoroughly terrified, we may gaze on Christ our King, by whose help all the faithful escape as more than conquerors. We have in Christ all we need for consolation so that we may never surrender to the place of despair because God looks after us with such a sufficient and in every respect suitable Savior. You see why it's so important to know for certain that the Lord has, that the God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who was crucified. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth and the provision of a Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ, that he is our chief prophet, that he is our only high priest, and that he is our eternal king. Help us to meditate on who he is for his people when we need various things in this life, that we might be reminded we have all we need in Christ our king, that we also share his anointing. We pray that by the power of his spirit we might carry out those offices which we share and are ours as well uh, to his glory. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.